morning. Calvin will be back next week and continuing with Acts, but I am Jonathan Young, if you don't know me, and I'm your current preacher. And so I have an announcement. Preaching is hard. Uh, Some people can make it seem easy, but I probably won't this morning. And sometimes, by the grace of God, I've had a lesson that while preparing, it seems like the words just come to me. And then sometimes it's more humbling. And I was, first few times I tried to prepare, I just stared at my Word document blankly thinking I've got nothing. And uh, it's frustrating because it was, while I was trying to prepare, I was trying to prepare about a topic that is really important to me. And it's, it's um, I guess I'll just say it's not the timing. Don't read anything into it. It's The topic is turn the other cheek. And it's important to me because the Great Commission is important to me. And in it, Jesus says, as his final command, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then the other half, which we can't forget, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And obedience is central to discipleship and to transformation and the Great Commission. And so much of Jesus' teachings can be summed up and turn the other cheek. And it's important to me because I know Calvin spoke on Acts 2 and the Acts 2 church, which is the ideal. Luke says the foundations of it were that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And I know to reach that ideal, we have to have as our foundation those four things. And the first one is devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. And so much of that teaching, again, can be summed up and turned the other cheek. And it's important because the kingdom of God is important. It's the first thing Jesus preaches about in the Gospel of Mark. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And central to the kingdom is forgiveness. And it's an attribute not just of Jesus, but the kingdom as a whole. And tied to forgiveness is, again, turn the other cheek. And, again, obedience is central to the kingdom. Rather than a geographical territory, a kingdom was thought of as a group of people who obeyed the king. Another translation of kingdom of God could be the reign of God. And in his kingdom, it's founded on obeying Jesus. 1 Timothy 1.17 To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, 
be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. First Timothy 6, 15 through 16. Our Lord Jesus Christ, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And like I said, my struggle to prepare was a good thing because it was humbling and it was a reminder that every time I have a lesson, I should aspire for the lesson to be more focused on Jesus preaching and then way down here are Jonathan's comments. But the center is what Jesus preached and it's the best lesson I could have because Jesus is the master preacher and probably 100,000 people are speaking today, this morning, and none of them holds a candle to Jesus. And it's always helpful to imagine yourselves in the stories of the Bible. Imagine being somewhere and seeing Jesus himself everything you know about him up there speaking and how magical it'd be how to be in the first century Palestine before the ethics of Christianity had its influence and there's no concept of hope or justice and Jesus's audience if you were in it you were more than likely empty in the spirit poor, feeling worthless, hopeless, lost, downtrodden, low self-esteem, mourning, lonely, hungering, and thirsting for light, for righteousness. And you go on a crowd, you go with a crowd on a hill to hear the man with the most authoritative presence imaginable, who you know has been healing and casting out demons, and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes can be interpreted as traits Christians should have, but I interpret them as more complex than that. Because with that interpretation, you have a bit of a struggle in trying to justify Christians being poor in spirit and that being something you should have. But rather I interpret it as Jesus talking to his audience and right off the bat telling them you who are poor in spirit are the ones I'm giving the kingdom of heaven. And you who are mourning, I'm going to comfort. And he compares them with low self-esteem to other good traits, to those who are peacemakers and merciful because Jesus believed in them. And he empathized right off the bat and showed them he loved them. He believed them enough to tell them to turn the other cheek in a way where he clearly has no doubt that they will and they can turn the other cheek. When he says it, he says it with the authority of someone who knows that they will because he believes in them besides what they think of themselves. 
So I'm going to read that passage from Matthew, from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5. Verse 38, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. You have heard that it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, that's a hard command, uh, and it just keeps getting harder, ending with, you must be perfect. But Jesus can command them to be perfect because he knows that they'll realize that it's not on them but they'll realize that, uh, as the author of Hebrews says, Christ's blood perfects us. And when I was a kid, I was Christian, and I had a really good, genuine faith. And I had to deal with a hard reality of bad things kept happening, even though I was what I thought of as a bad, per- a good person. Bad things, but I thought I was a good person. And I wanted to know why things were so unfair. And the answer I learned is a simple one. Life's not fair. End of story. So it's a hard principle, but it's important to accept that You may think if you work hard enough, things will go your way. But from your perspective, things will always be chaotic because the world doesn't revolve around you. And life's not fair. And nearly everything in your life is out of your control. The only thing you can truly control is yourself. And my dad, thankfully, when I was a kid, gave me good wisdom about that. I would argue and get angry with my mom a lot. There was a phase where we argued all the time. And so, of course, I went to my dad. And instead of him talking about who's right and who's wrong, he gave me really good wisdom about self-control. And I wish I could remember the conversation, but it was so long ago. But... I do know the gist was just self-control. And I listened to him and trusted him. 
And every time I would get upset, I had to repeat in my head over and over, self-control, self-control. And it made a huge difference. And I had more than just my dad, but I did have, like I said, that faith. And if you were blessed to know Jesus and believe in him when you were a kid, uh, when I reflect on it, it's a powerful perspective, the way I saw him when I was a kid. And when I came to him not knowing what to do and felt healing. And then that continued when I was an adult. When I really went through a big lapse in faith and far, far in the other direction. And I felt very unhappy. But when I was convicted to make the decision to come back, instantly I felt just incredibly happy and incredibly joyful. And I told one of my mentors who played a big part in that, I've noticed that it seems like not just I'm happier now, but the people around me are happier too. And he said, yeah, it's funny how that can happen. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a little leaven that gets in bread, and as it mixes around, the whole bread is full of it. And when I was fighting with my mom, that phase thankfully ended uh, because, in large part, I kept thinking self-control. And usually, not always, and this may not always be the case for you, but usually if I could think self-control and stay calm and not talk back, in about 10 minutes, it would fade and she would say something along the lines of, I'm sorry, it's been a rough day, I don't know why I got mad. And it wasn't all me, it, it was both ways too. I would calm down some and apologize too and the phase ended and we still have a great relationship and I'm extremely blessed to have her and she's just uh, constantly doing stuff for us. And so. I have a great mom, and don't take that away from this story. But anyways, so it's important to remember that, you know, we want to punch back, but it's not going to help. And a lot of the times they're looking for you to fuel the flames and looking for opportunities to say, I was right. And we want to. We want justice. We're usually emotional when that happens. We're not in the mood to think clearly. We want them to understand how it felt when they did that to us. It may hurt our pride and we feel like we have to restore it. But as far as those emotions, like I said, for me, I just have to shut my brain off and think, abide in Christ or turn the other cheek or self-control and just repeat it in my head over and over, abide in Christ, abide in Christ. In John 14, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. And when it comes to that pride that we may have, 
there's much more to be proud of if you can take the high ground, if you can refuse to give in. Taking the high ground is something that is just a step above what most people have seen. And there's a lot to be proud about that. And with Christ's peace and the power of the Spirit, we can take a punch. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life may also be manifested in our bodies. As far as justice, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul writes, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Or Matthew 12, 36, I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every word they have spoken. If you're thinking, I just have to let them know they're wrong. I just have to talk back. If it helps, remember that. Remember that justice isn't in your hands, and they will be held accountable, even if it isn't by you. Just remember those four words, turn the other cheek, and that Jesus commanded you to. And more than just helping yourself with your relationships. It's about glorifying Christ. And we represent Jesus in everything we do. And whether you want to or not, you represent Jesus in everything you do. Whether you like it or not, you represent him in everything you do. You may be a bad representative, and you may be a good representative, but you are a representative of him. And that's a big responsibility. And I have times where I feel uh, myself that it's too much for me and that I have those doubts and it can be hard. But Psalm 69, when I was in one of those slumps, I randomly turned to and it helped a lot. He says, O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. It's a prayer to pray when you're in those lumps that you made the commitment to represent Christ and you know it's the right thing to do and you pray, don't let me be a bad representative. And you know you're capable of it because Jesus believes in you and he wouldn't have commanded you if he didn't believe in you. And I've heard a lot people say that they don't like Christianity or religion, but they do like Jesus. People love, treat others the way you want to be treated and love your neighbor as yourself and turn the other cheek. People are fascinated by Jesus. 
a lot of testimonies I've heard people say at some point, and I started reading the Gospels, and I was just overwhelmed by the character and person of Jesus and his teachings, and it was totally different from anyone I've ever heard of. And we have the greatest thing to share, which is Jesus. But we have to practice what we preach and turn the other cheek like he did. His suffering is another huge appeal to him. And we know when he suffered, he said, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And that's usually the case for you as well when someone treats you wrong. Something I heard about a year ago that I thought, no, there's no way that's true, is humans, uh, people make their decisions 90% based on emotions and 10% based on logic when we like to think it's a small part of us or just making our choices based off emotions. But after I heard that, as time has passed, I realized more and more that's the case. And I shouldn't be surprised. It's, it's something that you can assume when someone treats you wrong for the most part. They put no thought into that. They just felt a certain way and threw it out there. In Romans 12:17, Paul writes, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, leave peace, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give someone, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The first three, three and a half centuries of Christianity, there were great persecutions. But we know from the ancient documents, very consistently, the Christians were able to say, we haven't done anything. We've received hate, but we haven't done anything back. We've prayed for you and prayed for the empire. And Paul says, by repaying evil for good, you'll heap coals on their head. And we also know from ancient documents, a lot of conversions came from people watching them being killed for entertainment, starting to feel uneasiness and guilty about watching them who have done nothing to deserve it be killed. And we should be able, in our not nearly as significant hard circumstances, say the same, I haven't done anything wrong, and we should be able to, once the trouble passes, have a clear conscience. Like I said, central to the kingdom of God is forgiveness. In Mark's version of the parable of having faith the size of a mustard seed, you can throw a mountain into the river and nothing will be impossible. 
In the very next verse, he says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. It's interesting to ask yourself why forgiveness was tied to that. If you're having trouble in your prayer life, you should ask, is there anyone I need to forgive? A good definition of forgiveness is simply thinking about what God did when he forgave you. He sees you as never have done it, never have done it whatever you're forgiven of, and he canceled the IOUs. So forgiveness is canceling the IOUs, the you owe me the right to watch you suffer. But instead, you make the decision that if you see someone who wrongs you go through harm, you will receive no joy, but hurt to watch them suffer in the same way you'd hurt to watch an innocent person suffer. And just a quick caveat about forgiveness I throw in uh, because a lot of people have questions about it is forgiveness is a subjective thing rather than objective so if someone assaults your kid subjectively you see them as innocent the same way God sees you as innocent and you won't treat them in any sort of angle, anger my bad but objectively, if a friend hires that person as a babysitter, you would still tell your friend, don't do that. Or if someone committed a crime, you may forgive them, but that doesn't mean you should tamper with the trial to get them off. So it is a subjective thing. And there are times where if you feel it's appropriate, you can say that, you know, I think what you did was wrong. But going back to it, in the 12-step programs or Celebrate Recovery or AA or Deliverance, forgiveness is one of the central issues because so much addiction and hurt is rooted in forgiveness. And they make you forgive so that you'll be freed and empowered. In John's great commission, he says, as the Father has sent me, so have I sent you. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive, you will be forgiven. But if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Again, interesting that Jesus thinks it's important enough to include in the great commission So, turning the other cheek is about the big test of obedience. It's one of the hardest things to do. And like I said, obedience is central to disciple-making and transformation. And we're living in the 
the most rapid growing phase of Christianity in history, especially in Muslim parts of the world and in China and in India. Christianity is growing faster than ever. And there's a book called Miraculous Movements by Jerry Trousdale about the movements happening in Sierra Leone. And it's one of the, as far as Christian books other than the Bible, it's one of the most influential for me. And in it, he talks about the importance of obedience in Sierra Leone and that movement. And he writes, we can say categorically that the powerful testimony of transformation resonates with the discouragement and disillusionment inside Islam, and that is the single most significant reason for rapid multiplication of churches. When Muslims observe the types of dramatic transformation that the gospel can bring in individuals, families, and whole communities, they're often jealous to experience the same. The Muslim leaders from this community, this is a paragraph from a story. The Muslim leaders from this community had observed other communities in their area that had become Christian, and they noticed a dramatic change in people's lives. Broken families now in unity, a sense of love and compassion among the people, and a breaking of old hostilities and vendettas. And they wanted the same thing in their community. And a really powerful image for me is in the book he describes in their Bible studies. They write, what will I do to obey this passage? And they have journals about how they'll obey. And he said when he visited, each person just had almost a library of journals, just so many all about obedience and how they'll obey. And it's so encouraging. And I really do believe that it can happen here. And people who don't think that, I really don't know why they would know what can or can't happen. And so I believe it can happen in Eugene. And interestingly enough, the um, two of the people who started the movement in Sierra Leone got the idea from when they came here and they saw a movement happening in America. And they said originally that would never happen in Sierra Leone. Of course, that could happen in America. They're not getting shot. And so today, I don't know how much you keep up with pop culture, but gradually there have been celebrities converting to Christianity, and it's starting to become a more viable option for people as they hear it more and more and see it more and more. And of course, converting as a celebrity must be extremely hard, and so I would really encourage people to give them grace because they're going to be doing a few mistakes, and so I wouldn't be strictly holding them to standards higher than yourself and throwing them out the window as a fake conversion just because they mess up. But Kanye West, who was a 
rapper who very recently released an album called Jesus is King has a line in one of his songs, how could he not be the greatest? And again, we have Jesus to share and really who has anything better and uh, this was exciting for me because, you know, growing up I loved Jim Carrey movies, but Jim Carrey actually has paintings that he painted of Jesus in every race that cover the door to his house, and he says it's because he wants people to be conscious of Christ as soon as they walk in. And he spoke to a group of prisoners, and this is a quote from Jim Carrey. Christ on the cross suffered terribly and was broken by it to the point of doubt and feeling of absolute abandonment. Then a decision was made to look upon the people who were causing that suffering with compassion and with forgiveness. And that's what opened the gates of heaven for all of us. Another quote from one of Kanye's songs. Every time I look up, I see God's faithfulness and it shows how much he is miraculous I can't keep it to myself. I can't sit here and be still. Everybody I will tell till the whole world is healed. And watching interviews with some of these people, I see a big fire in them that uh, makes me feel guilty of, you know, I don't have that motivation all the time. I don't have that fire. I really need to be conscious of what Christ did and light the fire, so to say. And after I first converted, um, it really was just one change after another and a huge transformation. And obeying would have seemed really hard, but because of that fire and constant prayer and reading scriptures, I didn't really have to put any effort into obeying and changing my lifestyles. It just, subconsciously, I knew exactly what to do. And fueling that flame, that Holy Spirit, it just happened naturally. And so, I encourage everyone to Continue to study everything Jesus preached in your own time, even if you've read it over and over. But really get it in your head so that in those hard moments you can remember. I'm going to close reading the passage again. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love your 
For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And one more verse, one of my favorites. This is Matthew 6:33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given unto you.